We're glad that you were able to make it out this morning uh, to this service. We're having one service today, and you know, I thought uh, Jim, uh, for Jim and for uh, John, you guys were the first ones here, and if you would have been a little bit more, if you had your MacGyver hat on, you could have diverted the water to the baptismal, and, and it would have been like a hot tub for you, and you could have waited for the fire police to show up in the baptismal. I mean, it was really hot water that was coming down, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, we're, we're to be... Thankful in all circumstances, and we know this is a difficult uh, situation, certainly having all of the fire companies uh, here yesterday and all of the drama that was going on was difficult, but uh, we know that the Lord has a plan and a purpose for it, and we will wait to see uh, what He has in store as we move forward towards the restoration uh, and repairs that will be needed within the building. We have been going through the book of John together as a congregation and we're continuing in the book of John and we're in the middle of John chapter 5 this week and you know as I reflected on some of the decisions that have been made in our country over the last few weeks it occurred to me how important, how one of the important functions of the church is to stand as a beacon of truth. Right? We need to look no further than the decisions that were made in New York in the past few weeks regarding the sanctity of human life, some decisions that were made regarding abortion. We need to look no further than our own state government and our own national government in decisions that are being made in regards to marriage, in regards to gender, in regards to how we define even a word as simple as man and woman. In regards to equality, there's all these decisions being made and laws being put into effect that in so many ways as we sit here today, we know are opposed to the truth that we find in God's Word. And so one of the functions, one of the roles of the church, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit is working through and using the church and using us is to stand as a beacon of truth, to take a stand on the Word of God. And you know, as we go into this discussion that Jesus is having with the Pharisees today, it's very interesting how he models this for us. As we look around in our world, we see destructive decisions that are leading to destructive lifestyles. And there's a current that's running through our culture that says that if we disagree with a person's lifestyle, then we must be a monger of hate. And that's simply not the case. And when Jesus was confronted with misunderstandings regarding his identity and regarding his authority, he took a stand for the truth. And he modeled for the church a way in which we might do the same. As we go into our text this morning, one of the realities that we'll uncover is three times today in our text, Jesus uses the line, truly, 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 truly. And essentially what he's saying to the Pharisees and the the religious leaders of the day is, you've heard this, but I'm going to tell you what the truth is. A long time ago, a group of men who were respected and revered as the strongest and brightest religious leaders of their day challenged Jesus on his authority and his identity And Jesus' response, what we're going to see today, was a stake that was driven directly into the heart of their religious fanaticism. Their man-centered, rule-following, religious moralism that they had created for themselves. 
how Jesus responds to these charges that have been leveled against him lays the foundation for our entire belief system, friends. And it would lay the foundation for the future of the church that he would promise to build. What we find in our text today, friends, it's powerful. And I thought it was so ironic. I I mentioned to somebody this morning we had all of these things happen in the church, very distracting things that happened over the weekend. And I think it's interesting as we go into this powerful text, the challenge for us today is to focus on the truth in the Word, to lay aside the distractions and to put our eyes on this incredible text of Scripture in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. It's a text, friends, that should cause us to marvel at the greatness of God and how powerful He is and should lead us to then worship His Son. Would you pray with me this morning as you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5, verses 19 to 30. Father God, we approach your word this morning as we do on Sunday. Lord, knowing that it's an activity that you call us into together as you have called us into community with one another. And Lord, we get to witness this morning your Son standing on the truth of his identity And his authority, Lord. We get to see him laying out before the Pharisees the reality of his equality with you. And Lord, I know that much has happened in our building. Much has happened in the life of our congregation this week. We anticipate and look forward to times that we may have later today with our families and friends. But Lord, now for this moment, right now as we open your word, we pray that you would direct our hearts and and our minds to the truth that's in it. Lord, we trust that you're going to use your Holy Spirit to produce something from your word in our lives today that we might leave here changed and transformed by the power of its truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of the life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, 
because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, as you remember, as we're theming out this chapter of John, what is the primary emphasis in John chapter 5? We said that the primary emphasis of John chapter 5 is that Jesus is equal to and equal with the Father. He's establishing his identity as the Son of God. And so at the very heart of the gospel, friends, what we find is that this is, this is incredible. We have a Savior who's distinctively relatable to us. He's distinctively relatable to mankind, yet he is completely equal to and equal with God. He's unlike us because he is God. So in verse 19, the foundation, where we see the foundation of Jesus' equality with God, Jesus is saying to the leaders, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. This is the first of three truly, truly statements in our text this morning. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees essentially adds up to us saying to somebody, this is the truth of the matter. Yes, I know that this is what our culture is saying. Yes, I know that this is the decisions that the government in New York has just made. Yes, I know that these are the realities of what our schools are saying regarding sexuality and regarding gender. But I tell you, there's a better way. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is better. This is a better way. And my question is, have you ever had to tell someone the truth and you knew that the person that you were telling the truth to wasn't going to be excited to receive it. That ever happened to you? Maybe it has. It's happened to me. It's something that happens a lot in coaching. When we coach athletes up, they don't always like to hear where their shortcomings are, where they fail. They're not always excited to hear why they lost their position to another player on the team. And in, in our culture and in our world, friends, at work, as we sit down and we have conversations with people regarding the truths of Scripture and biblical worldviews, they might not always be excited to hear those truths. And I have to tell you that Jesus, in this entire exposition, he's in the same exact boat because the Pharisees, they are not going to be very excited about the truth that he is about to deliver them. But you know, the reality is the most loving thing that we can do, whether people want to receive it or not, the most loving thing we can do is to tell the truth. To tell the truth. And so that's what Jesus is going to do here. And there's a paradox that we see. He's going to give them a paradox. The foundation of Jesus' equality with God the Father is found in Jesus' dependence on God the Father. Isn't that interesting in our text today? And there's more here. Jesus' dependence on the Father in no way disqualifies His equality with the Father. Now this is some deep theological truths and this text is packed with them. But it's full of, of the depth of this relationship between the Father and the Son. Equality with God does not equate to independence from God. Right? And, and this line in verse 19 is actually echoed all throughout Jesus' ministry. We can look in John chapter 8, 28. Jesus is responding to a group of people and he says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father had taught me. 
It would later come to define the essence of Jesus' attitude towards His ministry. That Jesus was equal with God, but we know from the book of Philippians that He did not consider that equality with God something to be grasped. Look at this passage from Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This statement, friends, in, in John chapter 5, verse 19, the Son does only what He sees the Father doing. It's setting up for us uh, in these first four verses four corresponding actions between the Father and the Son. And if, I don't know how many of you here write in your Bibles or highlight in your Bibles, but if you start in verse 19 and you look at that first truly, truly, there are four words for f-o-r there are four fours so four okay the number four there's four fours between this truly truly and the next truly truly and each of those fours f-o-r set up a corresponding action between the father and the son and so let's look at those actions together this morning the first action is this and it's at the end of verse 19 the son does what the father does So Jesus does what God does. Look at the end of verse 19. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus is affirming at the end of verse 19 that He perfectly imitates the actions of His Father. There's a picture in a a child photograph book that we have at home of myself when I was young. And my dad, he was up on the roof. And he was repairing the roof. And I was helping him. I wanted to imitate him. So I had my little tykes hammer. right, And I was trying to imitate the actions of my father. And and oftentimes sons do that in, in, in their lives. As they watch their father when they're young, they try to imitate their actions. Jesus is able to perfectly imitate and perform the actions of the father. He does what the Father does because He's as great and as powerful as the Father Himself. And friends, we know from previous Scriptures that God the Father reveals Himself to those whom He loves. And in this manner, He has revealed the fullness of Himself to Jesus. So think about the Olympics. Some of you have watched the Olympics and you've seen uh, the sport of synchronized swimming. And what what do you notice when you see those synchronized swimmers in the water? They are perfectly in step and perfectly in harmony with each other, even though they can't see what each other are doing. Somehow they're able to be perfectly in step and perfectly in harmony with each other. Jesus is able to see what God is doing because God reveals it to Jesus so that the Father and the Son are perfectly in harmony with one another as Jesus is performing His ministry on earth. All that the Father gave the Son to perform and accomplish, 
the Son was able to perfectly perform and accomplish on earth in complete synchronization with the Father's desires. There's a second action, and it's in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. And so what do we learn in this verse? We learn that the Father's love for the Son is the basis for His revelation to the Son. And we know that the imminent ministry of Jesus on earth would be found greater than in just the miracle. Remember the context of this chapter. Jesus has just healed this lame man. And this was an important miracle. It was something that Jesus would do. But we know that his further miracles would be even greater. We know he would eventually raise Lazarus from the dead. We know that he would eventually himself rise from the dead. Jesus would accomplish far greater works on earth. There was a purpose for what he was doing. And the purpose is at the end of the verse, friends. What does it say at the end of verse 20? So that you might marvel. That you might be amazed. And so verse 19 and verse 20 are summed up in that they're working together so that the church, friends, believers, we might marvel at the power and the wonder of the Father. And, and it's hard to explain what this kind of wonder might look like, but the only way I can describe it is if you've ever been uh, caught up uh, by maybe one of the superheroes that you see on TV, but Jesus is so much greater, right? And you look and you think, man, it'd be really cool if I could shoot a web from my hand and swing around towers. That would be fun. That would be really exciting and powerful. Well, God's so much stronger, so much powerful, so much mightier than any superhero, we could ever imagine, but it may give us just a glimpse in how we marvel at some of those superheroes. The reason that the Father is revealing Himself to the Son so that the Son might magnify the Father is so that we might marvel at the Father's greatness. Friends, do we stand amazed? Do we find ourselves awestruck at the work of Jesus? And when we do, do we realize that we're really just not marveling at the work of the Son, but also at the work of the Father. Jesus is in perfect step with the Father, working so that the Father might receive all the glory that He is due. And we know this, friends. Jesus didn't just come to earth to be obedient to God. That was part of it. He didn't just come to bring salvation to us. That was part of it too. But Jesus came to magnify and to glorify the Father. He came so that we might marvel at the glory of God. And the entire pericope of all of the Gospels and what they teach is a resounding testament to the power and the majesty of God as revealed through Jesus. We sang about it this morning. Friends, we should sing about it every single day of our lives. How great is our God. As each page uncovers the works of Christ, we're confronted over and over and over again with the glory of God because of the great works of Jesus. We should always be marveling at the work of God. This happened yesterday, and I hope as a congregation we're going to marvel at what God produces through it. We know he's got some kind of plan in store for it. There'll be something that he wants to do through it. And I, and I pray together we can marvel. I pray in our own lives as we watch God work and accomplish mighty things in our lives. As he brings us 
through obstacles, as he takes us to mountaintops, as he walks with us in the valleys, I pray that our attention would remain fixed on Jesus so that we might marvel at the work of the Father, being completely satisfied in God and what he's doing in our lives. One of these, quote, greater works that the Father would give Jesus is revealed in verse 21, and it's the third action in this portion of our text. If you look down at verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. And so the third action that we see here in this first truly, truly is that the Father raises the dead and gives life, and so too does the Son give life to whomever He wills. And this statement, friends, remember, we're reading this knowing that Jesus rose, uh, raised, saying my verb's wrong today, that he raised Lazarus from the dead. We're reading this knowing that Jesus overcame death. Remember, in the context, he's talking to a group of people that had no idea that he was going to do this, that he was powerful enough to do this. When we come to the Scriptures, the Lord has gifted us the opportunity to come with a greater context than those who lived during the time of Jesus. And this statement, friend, draws us ahead to Lazarus to Jesus' own resurrection from the dead, but it also draws us towards our own salvation and future resurrection of the body at the second coming of Christ. It's a statement that's loaded with implications for our future glory. And it's also a reminder of what we discussed in our time together last week on the healing of this lame man, that the Son gives life to whom He wills. And again, that is a line that is chalked full of theology, but we can sum it up like this. Our life depends on His will. His will. One of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible is Romans chapter 9. I think it's a powerful, powerful testimony of the Lord's will. And if you remember, we asked the question last week, why did Jesus just choose that one man? Just that one man. There was all kinds of people around the pool. Why just that one man? And we said it was further evidence to the reality that indeed Jesus was God because he has compassion on whom he will have compassion and he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. Look at Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 18. This is Paul, he's writing, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, again, everything with a purpose, friends, no accidents, everything with God is with a purpose. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so, friends, our life, if we sit here today and we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we should be thankful that He has given us life because our life completely depends on His will. On His will. 
The fourth action in this portion of our text perfectly explains why Jesus has the authority and the power to grant life. There's a reason that Jesus has the authority and the power to grant life, and that's because he has been given all judgment. He's been given all judgment. Determining who lives and who doesn't live is the action of a judge, and Jesus is the perfect judge. And friends, just because we don't always understand this and can't wrap our minds around it doesn't mean that his judgment is not just. It actually is a further indictment on our own weakness and inability to understand God. And so the fourth action is this. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So there's another so that at the end of this verse that sums up verse 21 and 22 and 23. Now we might give pause here and reflect back on John 3, 16 and 17 because some of you that know John 3, 16 and 17 well might think that there's a discrepancy here. Right, So let's take a look back at John 3, 16 and 17. The Father judges no one, but He's given all judgment to the Son. But John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So if, if the Son did not come to condemn, yet He's been given all judgment. How do we, how do we understand these passages? And, and friends, there's a few observations to make here. First, condemnation and judgment are different. Right? Condemnation flows from judgment, but life and salvation also flow from Jesus' judgment. There's a second observation here, and that's the context of both of these passages is extremely important and a key to understanding how we line these up in both of these texts. In John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about his purpose for coming into the world. He's not talking about his role as being equal with God. He's talking about his purpose for coming. And there's a difference, friends, between purpose and function. And so finally, the context of this verse um, is so important because what we find is that one of Jesus' purposes for coming was to bring life. We know that from John chapter 1. But one of his functions as being equal with God and working in perfect harmony and step with the Father is to be given all judgment. And this line popped into my head this week as I was studying this, and I'm going to say it. I've just begun to unpack this, so bear with me. I I think it's powerful. Life comes before judgment. I'll say it again. Life comes before judgment. If you look at the testimony of Scripture, first Adam and Eve, then judgment. Right? We have Moses, and you have Moses leading an exodus, leading people out of bondage in Egypt, and he's doing great. He's leading the people, and then all of a sudden, what does he do? Strikes a rock. Life, then judgment. And we know from the testimony of John that Jesus came to bring life, and he had life within himself. So first life, then judgment. 
And I think it's also interesting that in the context of our passage today, this is the second action that comes followed by a so that. Jesus gives life to whom he wills and has all judgment so that we might honor and worship him as God. And friends, this is the reality behind that. The one who grants us life deserves our worship. The one who grants us life deserves our worship. I'm very thankful that my mother had me 30-some years ago as a child. I don't worship her for that. I'm thankful for her for that and my father and the role they played. But when we know who truly gives us life, the Father, it's He who deserves our worship. And so verses 19 and 21, they come together to form our first response, to marvel. All that the Father and Son are doing together should cause us to marvel. And verses 22 to 23 now come together to form our second response. Honor and worship the Son. And then there's a warning here, friends, in our text. And it's a stern warning. And it's a warning given to the Pharisees. But it's important for us to recognize as well because, friends, we could be guilty of the same thing. Those who do not honor the Son are not honoring the Father who sent the Son. Look at the end of verse 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The object of our honor and worship serves as the foundation of the judgment against us. I'll say that again. The object of our honor and the object of our worship will serve as the foundation for the judgment against us who are we giving glory to who are we giving honor to in our lives hopefully it's the father and the son that we're praising them we're honoring them we're thanking them for all things because if it's anything else that's not the judgment that we want to be found in for those who will have eternal life their eyes will be fixed on the earth the author and perfecter of their faith jesus And for those who will receive condemnation and eternal separation from God, their judgment is just because they never honored Jesus or worshipped the Father. And so there's a good question here that follows up. How do we know we have eternal life? How do we know those of us that sit here today and claim to know Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus, how do we know that we have eternal life? And Jesus is going to answer that question In the second truly, truly of our text, look down at verse 24. This is the second truly, truly now. He's done with the first discourse. Now he's moving into the second statement of truth to the Pharisees. And he's answering the question, who has eternal life? Look at this, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. So friends, those who hear the words of Jesus and those who believe in the Father who sent Jesus receive eternal life. And there's a reversed pattern here, isn't there, at the end of this verse? It's interesting, in our world, when we talk about dying in our world, we often talk about going from life to death. Right? We often talk about they, they, they've given up their life or they've passed on from life to death. Isn't it ironic in the context of this passage that that is flipped? That when we're talking from a biblical worldview, when we're talking from the context of life with Jesus, we actually pass 
from death and darkness to life eternal. Friends, that's the hope we have before us as believers. The hope we have is actually opposite from what we know here on earth. What we see, we see darkness and we see death. And what we see here is far from everlasting. But the hope that we have is that we are going to pass into forever. Friends, we're going to pass from what is temporary, from what is transient, into what is eternal and life and hope forever. His gift of eternal life is a gift that is a forever gift. You've heard of the gift that keeps on giving? Friends, this is the gift that keeps on giving for eternity. It never, ever stops. Eternal fellowship with the Lord. And now there are two events in our text that come to define this power that Jesus has to grant life. And the events are described in the final five verses of our text. And it's interesting, one of these events is happening now. So for one of these events, Jesus actually says the hour is coming and is now here. So one of those events is happening right now, but one is for the future. Let's take a look at those, starting in verse 25. The third, truly, truly, today. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I think it's interesting, again, if you're a person that underlines in your Bible or highlights, take a look here because in this verse it talks about the Son of God and that the dead will hear His voice and rise because it's by the authority and the power of the Son of God's voice that those who are dead are given life and come to life. Jesus is able to speak life by the power of His words. And the power of his words can raise the dead. But why and how is Jesus qualified to execute this plan of salvation? Why is he able to do this? And if you look at verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So Son of God, Son of God, voice of God has the power to raise the dead and give life. Son of man, as, as, a, as God who walked the earth with us, who took on human flesh, who experienced temptation, friends, as we experienced temptation, who suffered as we suffered. Son of man, He is able, yet found without sin, never sinning. He is able to execute the judgment. There's a prophecy in the book of Daniel that looks forward to this. It's in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given all dominion. It sounds like the end of Philippians that we looked at. And glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So this first event that Jesus is talking about here, this is our spiritual 
resurrection, friends. This is for us here on earth when we go from being spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins according to the ways of the world and Jesus transforms us, breathes into us, regenerates us through the power of His Holy Spirit and gives us life. But there's another judgment that's coming as well, right? We, we are anticipating, church, a second coming, are we not? Look at verse 28. How will Jesus execute this perfectly just judgment? Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Now look at what's missing here. He doesn't say and is now here, right? Just the hour is coming. When all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Friends, all who are in tombs will hear the voice. That, that all who are in tombs that have a relationship with Jesus will hear his voice and come out like Lazarus when he called him to come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Look at Daniel chapter 12. Verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Friends, the, the day is coming when Jesus is going to return. And, and we're not to be ignorant of that time. We know that he's coming in the clouds. He's going to call the church up to him and those who are dead in Christ will rise and go to meet him somehow our physical bodies will be coming up out of the grounds I don't know how it's going to work people talk to me they have so many questions about well what about this and what about that and people who are in the ocean and people who have been cremated I don't know I know that God is powerful enough I'm marveling at the power and the wonder of our father he's able to do all things he's going to be able to accomplish this to somehow unite us with perfectly, physically resurrected bodies. And it's going to be a miraculous wonder to behold, for sure. We should all be looking forward to it with great anticipation. And then, friends, as Jesus is wrapping this discourse up with the Pharisees here, and he continues on and will continue on next week, he ends with the same line almost that he began with. Look back at verse 19 again really quickly, and then we're going to look at verse 30. At the beginning of verse 19, what does he say? He says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. Now, bookend that with what you read here in verse 30. What does he say? He summarizes it. He brings it all together. He wraps it up in a beautiful package for us this morning. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I'm not seeking my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Friends, many years ago, I had the opportunity at Lancaster Bible College to go and sit in a small group with uh, Dr. Richard Blackaby. And as we sat down, there was about 12 of us in a room with him, and he was talking about experiencing God and he was talking about his father and he was talking about all these things in his life that the Lord has done in his ministry and he began he said I want to share with you my life verse and he wrote up on the whiteboard John 15 5 apart from you I can do nothing and friends as we as we think about the text this morning 
as we think about how our lives should look in light of these realities, if this was the cry of Jesus, that apart from the Father, He could do nothing, how much more so should this be our cry as well? Friends, we have to talk about our great need for Jesus. I have to stand up here before you and I have to talk to you about my great need for Jesus because I desperately need Jesus every day, every minute of my life. I have a great need for Jesus. It was the message of the disciples. We can do nothing without Jesus. It was the message of Stephen. It was the message of Paul. We can do nothing on our own. Nothing on our own. He must do it. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. And friends, as you study the saints, it's amazing. As you go back through and as you read the, many of you in here have read the testimony of missionaries who have gone, who have, many have given their life for the cause of Christ. And you've read the testimony of men who have been martyred for the faith. There's a common theme in all of those stories and they all share this with exounding exaltation. Apart from Him, we could do nothing. They've all come to this conclusion in their life. We can't lead the church. We can't raise our families. We can't function properly as spouses. We can't function properly as parents. We can't perform any ministry that has lasting value. We can't walk in obedience. We won't be effective without Jesus. We need Jesus to walk with us as a church, friends, as a body of Christ, corporately together, we need Jesus. And I can't say it enough, I can't scream it enough from this pulpit, your pastor needs Jesus. And pray, pray that I would be drawn closer and closer to Him. I pray for you, that you would be drawn closer and closer to Him. Lord, we desperately need You. We desperately need You. And we recognize that as as you had relationship with the Father and testimony with the Father, as you proclaim that apart from Him you could do nothing, so much more so, Lord, that we proclaim this morning that apart from you we can do nothing. Father, we're preparing this morning to participate in communion together. It's an activity that you've called the church into. Lord, that you've called us to participate in together as a body of Christ. And Lord, it should be a reminder of the great work that you've done for us. We should be thankful for all that you've done. But Lord, it should also be a reminder of our continual daily need for you in our lives. For your presence. For your power. Lord, that we wouldn't rest on our own strength. That we wouldn't be a church or we wouldn't be a people who are relying on our own abilities. But Father, our lives would be a testimony to the greatness of our God, the effectiveness of your death, and the power of your word. Lord, that your spirit can work through your word to produce the fruit of the spirit in our lives, that we would be driven into a greater dependence for you. Every day of our lives, we would wake up with the resounding thought that we need you to get through our day. And when we're confronted in our lives with situations that are cloudy, that we don't understand, illnesses, Father, uh, situations in our jobs that are difficult, difficult relationships, Father, that it would drive us to a greater dependence on You. 
And that the evidence and the testimony of your faithfulness in our lives would be a resounding testimony to the power of your character and your being. That people outside in the world, Lord, as we go from within these walls, would see that we serve a God who can do the impossible. That apart from you, we can do nothing, but that with you, Lord, we can do anything. Anything. Father, help us to live that reality in our lives. Help that to be true in the peaks when we're ascending on high, walking with you in the, on the mountaintops. But Lord, help it to be true in the valleys where it's foggy and it's scary and we cannot see all the time. Help it to be true in those days too. That the world might see and that they might worship and that they might come to know you through the testimony of our lives. Lord, as we prepare to participate in communion this morning, as our elders come forward this morning to serve our communion, I pray that we would remember, that we would reflect, that we would be reminded of the great thankfulness we should have for what you've accomplished for us, but also on the great need that we have to walk with you every moment of our lives. Lord, help us reflect and be joyful as we think on these realities. In Jesus' name we pray.